He handcuffed them using the cable ties and then he shot each one of them in the head. Both acts were mad and bad and had no logic and no motive. It seemed to be murder for its own sake. It seemed to be a thrill killing for its own sake. And these are the sort of things that police find most baffling and that rest of us find most terrifying. I'm Andrew Rule and this is Life and Crimes. Today we're going to talk about a very bad man called Ashley Mervyn Colston. And Ashley Mervyn Colston is someone who was born bad. He was one of those people that were wired differently, probably from birth. We now and again get them. I think Peter Dupas fits that profile. And so do a handful of others that we've run into over the years. Someone whose background and family is not criminal, but who just, for some unknown reason, are different from those around them. And Ashley Mervyn Colston was born and raised in a tiny little rural hamlet in northeastern Victoria called Tambangalanga. And Tambangalanga is southeast of Albury, Wodonga. It's only just in uh, Victoria. It's up near the border. It's up near the Hume Weir, in fact. And the Colstons have been around that district for so long that there are still several of them up there and there is a Colston Road and the surname Colston will be on honour boards around the district and football teams and cricket teams and all the rest of it. And when Ashley Mervyn Colston was born in 1956, his parents were dairy farmers in the heart of the valley. And it's there that Ashley Mervyn Colston grew up. And no one heard anything much about him until 1971. Now, it's amazing that such a tiny district could have two strange things happen to it in 1971. And the two things were this. In January 1971, 14-year-old Ashley Mervyn Colston made headlines of some sort because he did a very terrible and dastardly thing, something that was a sign of uh, even worse things to come. And within a matter of months of that episode, which I will describe in a minute, another thing happened in the district, and that was that a man called Raymond Edmonds, known to our listeners as Mr Stinky. Raymond Edmonds was share farming on a large property there where he milked 150 cows and fed 200 pigs. He was living there with his second wife, Colleen Knight, and I think they had two children each and Colleen had a third one, which was fathered by Raymond Edmonds. And in April of that year, and this will only be within a matter of walking distance from the Colston farm, Raymond Edmonds said, I'm going fishing one day, and he'd done the morning milking, and he went off during the middle of the day, as dairy farmers can do, and he took a new car that he'd bought and a fishing rod, and he went to the Hume Weir, which is only a few kilometres away, and there apparently he went out on a small boat to go fishing. But later he did not show up for milking, and Colleen 
was very anxious and worried, but she and the children did the milking. And then I think she got in touch with the police and the police went and searched the weir and they couldn't find him. And then next day they had another search and they couldn't find him. And there's the car parked beside the weir. I think there was a boat sort of moored to a tree or something and no sign of Raymond Edmonds. And the reality was that Edmonds had actually caught a taxi to Albury Railway Station and then caught a train to Melbourne and he'd totally cleared out from the district but he'd faked his own disappearance to make it look as if he had drowned. And it is an amazing thing that in that same three, four-month period that Ashley Colston, the neighbour's boy just down the road, also did a bizarre thing. And what Ashley Colston did, he confirmed his reputation locally as being a strange sort of kid. As a primary school boy in at the local school, he'd been a troubled boy. Apparently he had some learning difficulty and it made him very frustrated and he used to break things, he used to have flashes of temper, he was quite a strange child. And we often hear this, apparently he was cruel to animals and he was a firelighter. And these are some of the signs of a psychopathic personality. And the reality is that Raymond Edmonds, the older man down the road who staged his disappearance, had also been a firelighter and cruel to animals as a teenager. There were really some similarities between them. What Ashley Colston did at the age of 14, when he would be hitting puberty, he actually broke out and started to behave very strangely. He started to stalk the two local school teachers. Now, these were two young women. One was 21, one was 20. They were living in a school teacher's house next to the school, and Colston's farm wasn't far away and this kid was a weirdo and he spied on them for two weeks and he stalked them and one night he went down to their house and he bailed them up with a 22 rifle which he would have had access to on the farm everyone on farms had 22 rifles to shoot rabbits and foxes and to put down injured stock and he'd probably just stolen the rifle from his father's shed or whatever and he bailed up these two young women at gunpoint and he forced them into their car and then at gunpoint he forced them to drive across the border into New South Wales. It was fairly late at night when this happened and they drove through the night until 5am. I don't know if they stopped elsewhere but at 5am they got to Gundagai and it was at Gundagai that probably they were all getting hungry and the young women had enough brains to say we need to pull up for food and fuel and they persuaded him that it would be a good idea to stop at a service station. And interestingly, they said, you know, despite the fact he had a rifle and terrified us, we found him very ordinary, very normal. He didn't look particularly bad. He looked quite normal. And so they gained enough confidence that they persuaded him to pull up, and then they ran for it. They bolted, contacted the police, and the police grabbed him, And, of course, that was his first brush with the law. And Ashley Colston was subsequently charged with the abduction and did three months in Tirana Boys' home in Melbourne. And 
you'd hope that the three months in Melbourne at the boys' home might have made him think he couldn't get away with things like that. But the reality was that Ashley Colston was a very disturbed young man underneath, despite the fact he presented day-to-day as a relatively calm, relatively shy, relatively quiet and relatively normal youngster. Inside, he was far from normal. His parents were shocked and distressed and horrified and within a year or so, they sold up the family property at Tambangalanga and they moved to northern New South Wales. They moved to a district, I think, called Kyogle. And we don't really hear much more about Ashley Mervyn Colston, who went with his parents and lived on the farm in northern New South Wales, well away from the family origins down in northeast Victoria. And we don't hear anything about him. In fact, no one really, except the locals in northeast Victoria, knew anything about him. His name meant nothing. Until July 1992, when a terrible thing happened in Melbourne, suburbia. And this is 21 years after Ashley Colston has abducted the young teachers. In July 1992, a couple of young students advertised for a housemate to join their house in Burwood. They had a rented house in Burwood. There were two young women. They were in their early 20s. They were tertiary students. And as it happens, a friend of theirs, a young man, was there on this particular day that a stranger turned up to inquire about the room to rent. And the stranger had rung them and had arranged to meet them there on a particular day in September 92. And he duly did turn up and he produced a 22 rifle, most probably a sawn-off 22 rifle with a homemade silencer attached, homemade silencer made from an oil filter, most probably. And he effectively handcuffed each of these people at gunpoint. He used plastic cable ties to tie their hands together and he put one in each room. The three victims were Karen Helmstridge, Anne Smurden, and a young man who was a little bit older than the girls, Peter Dempsey. He handcuffed them using the cable ties and then he shot each one of them in the head, an execution-style killing. Now, although some money or something was taken, it clearly wasn't actually a robbery. Whoever did this was motivated not by anything obvious, not by any logical reason. It wasn't really a robbery. It wasn't a sex attack. It seemed to be murder for its own sake. It seemed to be a thrill killing for its own sake. And these are the sort of things that police find most baffling and that the rest of us find most terrifying because the reality is that most murders, bad as they are, are committed by people who are known to the victims. And for some reason that makes the rest of us feel a little more secure because we say if A murders B because A is living with B or hates B because they've had an argument at the hotel or they're arguing over whose dog bit who or whatever, that's one thing. But when a total stranger turns up for no reason at all and kills total strangers for no reason and just walks away with it, this 
is an awful thing. We find it very haunting and the police find it very hard to start with because none of the usual tactics apply. It's not much point looking at those closest to home. Of course, they do have to eliminate those closest to home, but it soon became apparent that there was no logical reason for these three young people to be murdered. They were not associates of any sort of criminals. They had no criminal activity. They had done nothing wrong. They hadn't upset anybody. There was just nothing in their background to suggest that they had done anything to attract this killing. The police had absolutely nothing to go on. I have to say they didn't do a great job of preserving the scene. People in heavy boots tramped through the house and wrecked the crime scene and it's possible that potential DNA samples, which might have been useful many years later when DNA technology became available, were probably lost or not picked up. And basically this cold case remained cold and may never have been solved except for one thing. In September 1992, the killer struck again, but this time nowhere near as efficiently or anonymously. This person attacked a couple, a married couple, near the National Gallery in Melbourne, just off St Kilda Road. Now, St Kilda Road is one of the busiest thoroughfares in Melbourne, which makes it one of the busiest thoroughfares in Australia. It's only about 8.30 or something like that at night, so it's not particularly late. There are people still coming home from work, people going around the place, going to restaurants, going to shows. There's joggers, there's walkers, there's people on bikes and so on. And so it was a fairly brazen thing for an attacker to bail up a couple at their parked car, which was parked up in Government House Drive, not far from the Shrine of Remembrance. And this person produced a sawn-off twenty-two rifle with a homemade silencer jammed on the end, which was an old oil filter. And he attempted to do what he'd done before. He produced cable ties and wanted the woman to tie up her husband or handcuff her husband, and then he would be able to handle the woman himself with the husband tied up. But the husband in this case thought, if we let him do this, we're probably both dead. And so he launched an attack on the man and said, run, run, to his wife. And it allowed his wife to run away. And while they were struggling, the husband yelled out for help. And two off-duty security guards turned up and rushed at the man with the gun. And this was a very brave thing because... He was, you know, pointing the gun at them. He, in fact, he fired some shots, but because of the sawn-off barrel and probably because of the oil filter jammed over the end of the barrel, the rifle was effectively very, very inaccurate. It would only be useful at a very close range, but the reality was that the bullet that came out the end went off to the left. It didn't aim true and straight, and it just wounded one of these security guards, I think in the leg or the hip, but he kept coming. He rushed the gunman and grabbed him and held him down very bravely. It was a very brave act and held him until police turned up and the unknown shooter was arrested. And within a matter of hours, the police had ascertained that the unknown shooter 
was this man, Ashley Mervyn Colston. And this was a shock on many levels because if anybody looked up recent media coverage, they would see that he had been in the news back in the late 80s, only three years before, when as a sort of an eccentric long-distance sailor, he had embarked on Australia Day 1988 on a very dangerous journey in a homemade eight-foot craft called G'day 88, which he wanted to sail across to New Zealand. Now, this was a very dangerous thing to do. It had never been done before, I don't believe, in such a small craft. And he left on Australia Day 88, and he was picked up by a tanker after encountering cyclonic seas, terribly dangerous seas, picked up by a tanker answering some sort of beacon mayday call just north of New Zealand. So, in fact, he had managed to sail across the Tasman but had fallen short of landing in New Zealand and had to be rescued. And his boat, or the remains of his boat, was later washed up on the beach. Amazingly, after that narrow squeak, the same man, Ashley Colston, known in the media jovially as Captain Bathtub because his little eight-foot boat did look like a bathtub, he managed to sail a version of the same boat back across the Tasman from New Zealand to Queensland, which was a remarkable thing. He accomplished that journey leaving in late 1988 and landing, I think it was in Brisbane, in the first days of the new year of 1989 and naturally enough had attracted a lot of media coverage for a very foolhardy, dangerous and daring feat. And here was this man, this sort of exhibitionist, if you want, who had now been arrested trying to abduct and probably kill a couple in the gardens near Government House. But it wasn't long before the police, ballistics experts, checked the rifle. They will have test-fired the rifle, the sawn-off rifle, and then checked the rifling marks left by the rifle, and they would have matched those bullets with the ones removed from the bodies of the three young people at Burwood a few months earlier. And it was then that they realised that this lunatic arrested near Government House was in fact the triple murderer from Burwood, which made sense because both acts were mad and bad and had no logic and no motive. And that was when Ashley Mervyn Colston became notorious throughout Australia as the Burwood triple murderer. And it was then, of course, that his previous history was uncovered. As a 14-year-old, he had been arrested for abducting two teachers at gunpoint back in 1971, and he stood trial in 1995. He was given three consecutive life sentences. He didn't lie down quietly. For some reason, Colston is regarded as fairly quiet, fairly shy, but obviously confident and with the sort of strange psychology, the narcissistic personality that thinks that they're always right and everyone else is always wrong. He launched several appeals and lost them. And indeed, he lost out badly because initially, strangely enough, a judge had seen fit to give him a sentence 
which meant that he could apply for parole after 30 years, which I find fairly lenient personally. But after his appeals failed, another judge said, you will remain locked up for life. You show no signs of compassion or remorse. You're very bad news and you can stay in. We'll throw away the key and you will die inside. And that, listeners, is probably what will happen. But there's more to the story of Ashley Colston, or there probably is. We don't know for sure, but we can suspect things. And we'll be back after this. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. It didn't take Einstein to realise that there was a 21-year gap in his CV and that anybody who's crazy enough to abduct two young women at gunpoint when they're 14 and drive halfway across New South Wales is probably going to do something in the intervening 21 years before he becomes a full-on triple murderer, thrill killer. And so it came about that various police forces around the country started to go through their records to look for unsolved crimes. And it became clear that there were two interesting clusters that were possibly or probably relevant to where Ashley Colston was living at the time. Now, you will recall that his parents had moved back in the early 70s to Kyogle in northern New South Wales, and that this district was not that far from Tweed Heads and those sort of border towns where the Gold Coast starts and very popular places where a lot of Victorians go to retire or to holiday. And it turns out that in 1979 and early 1980, there was a spate of very ugly attacks. They were rapes, they were sex attacks by a man wearing a balaclava and armed with, I think, a sawn-off twenty-two rifle. These attacks happened on the Gold Coast and the Tweed Heads area. Five women were raped in these random attacks. And in early 1980, the attacks came to an end after a very tragic incident in which a couple, a man called Jeffrey Parkinson and his partner, female partner, were abducted at gunpoint in the Tweed Heads area and they were directed to drive out into a, a more remote spot, to a creek. This fitted the modus operandi, the MO of the balaclava rapist because what the balaclava rapist had done several times before this was to approach couples who might be in cars or somewhere where he could reach them and he would force at gunpoint handcuff the male of the pair with cable ties and then sexually assault or rape the female in front of the male and this was the attacker's way of demonstrating complete control to 
cause the most grief, terror and horror and so on. And so he attempted to do this with Parkinson, Jeffrey Parkinson and his partner. But in this instance, Parkinson fought back. And while they were struggling with the gun, the female partner ran away and was able to get help. But by that stage, it was too late because the gun had gone off and Jeffrey Parkinson was shot dead. Jeffrey Parkinson's murder pretty well was the end of the reign of terror of the so-called balaclava rapist in that area. Interestingly, it would appear that Ashley Mervyn Colston, within a short time, moved from that district down to Sydney. It was in Sydney, in the southern suburbs known locally as the Shire, that is the Sutherland Shire, well-known large area south of Sydney. It was there in 1985 that there was another spate of attacks. Again, it was a man in a balaclava. Again, he would commit rapes at gunpoint. And it would appear in retrospect that he left at least enough samples of bodily fluid that the police forensic experts were able to match up the blood type from the Gold Coast attacks and ultimately from Ashley Colston in Victoria. And the result was that in all three cases, the attacker had A-type blood. And this, although not totally rare, it's interesting that in each district, in attacks conducted over two decades, that the attacker had A-type blood. And this does not prove that the Gold Coast balaclava rapist and that the Sutherland Shire rapist were Ashley Mervyn Colston, but it's the way to bet. It's never been proven scientifically. One reason might be that he's serving life with no parole. There's no chance of him getting out and that any further investigation without an easy avenue is probably wasted effort because those resources could be used to work on other cold cases where there is someone still at large. And so we don't know conclusively whether Ashley Mervyn Colston was legally responsible for those other attacks and the murder of a very brave man called Jeffrey Parkinson. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. We started this podcast by pointing out that both Ashley Colston and Raymond Edmonds, although separated by at least a decade or perhaps 12 or 14 years in age, that they had both been living at Tambangalanga in 1971 and that in some respects they were similar. They presented as relatively normal people. They were able to maintain on some level reasonably normal relationships. They were fairly quiet. They could be quite polite. They could be quite successful at doing the things that they did. They were probably both good workers, I think, and regarded as good employees. And yet both these men who were sex offenders and murderers, both willing to abduct and to kill people to further their own strange psychological lusts, 
both of them as boys, as children, had shown signs of what was to come. Each of them had been cruel to animals, particularly young, defenceless animals. These are the sort of kids that you might find drowning kittens or doing other horrible things, you know, tipping petrol on birds and lighting them or cutting the tails off mice or all the sort of things that cruel children might do. These guys would do it. They were also firelighters. Now, the tendency to arson is an insight into disturbed minds. We see it over and over and over that people who do bad things later in life often show signs of being firelighters when they are young. Many of them also are peeping toms. There's a huge chance that Ashley Colston was a peeping tom. He'd probably started out developing his idea of abducting the two teachers in his home district after watching them through the windows of the teacher's house. The same applies to Raymond Edmonds, who was known to have been a peeping tom around the Ardmona district near Shepparton shortly before the double murder of Abina Medill and Gary Haywood in 1966. And if you look closely at these sort of people, there nearly always are signs that they are disturbed in some way. This applies to a lot of the sort of people who do terrible crimes. As children, they show signs of the monsters that they become. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.